As always, it's my pleasure and a privilege to open up God's Word with you today. So if you do have your Bibles, why don't you go ahead and open them up with me to the book of Psalms. Psalms, of course, as we continue in our sermon series this summer, Sing to the Lord, our times are in His hands. And I hope you're like me and have found this series fruitful thus far, um, very nourishing for the soul um, to look at these psalms. We did a few years ago, and now we're coming back again, hitting some different ones. So specifically, Psalm 47 is where we're headed this morning. That's where we're going, Psalm 47. And as you're turning there, I wanted to start with a conversation. It'll be a little one-sided about celebration. Celebration. Uh, Interesting, if you start to think about celebration, we celebrate all different kinds of ways. We celebrate all different types of things. And I think the way we celebrate sometimes, it, it can get a little weird if you really think about it. You know, we just do it so often, we don't think about it much. But um, sometimes we celebrate by buying expensive fiery bombs and shooting them off into the sky or in the middle of our neighborhoods in front of our houses and cars. Uh, sometimes we just take the fire, we put it on a cake, and we put it in front of an infant. Uh, sometimes we sing. Sometimes we march down a city street like in a parade. Sometimes we take time off of work. We go on a vacation or a trip. Sometimes we treat ourselves. And then it's not just the ways we celebrate, but there's all kinds of things we celebrate too. Uh, Sometimes we just celebrate the passage of time. Made it through another year. Other times we celebrate success. Maybe a a new job or a job promotion or maybe just a big life goal achieved. You did it. Celebration, something that I think we all feel at different times, but in different ways. I think that something we don't often get to celebrate is victory. Victory. I think sports maybe are the closest thing we get to that, tasting victory. Uh, I know not everyone loves sports. Uh, We're in the midst of baseball season. Do we have any Seattle Mariners fans here this morning? Okay, always impressed with how proudly you guys raise your hands. Um, 2001, right? Last time to the playoffs. This is the year, though. Um, I'm a little concerned for you guys because the first three words in our text are clap your hands, and I wasn't sure if you knew what that meant or what it looks like (laughs) to clap your hands. Um, just kidding, of course. I really do think this is the year. Exciting things going on, trade and all that. But, uh, and I promise I'm not twisting the knife any further, but I bring that up to say there's a difference between rooting for something to happen and actually tasting the victory, relishing in the accomplishment of the goal, the prize. You see what I'm getting at here? And our psalm gets to that a little bit. It's a psalm of celebration, I had a uh, buddy in high school that whenever something good would happen in life to him or just in general, he would say, winning, like chocolate milks added back to the cafeteria, winning, (laughs) you know, whatever it was, like life was a game that you could be winning or losing at. But you don't need me to tell you that sometimes it doesn't always feel like we're winning, does it? Uh, Maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking, Yeah, winning, that's not even in my vocabulary right now. 
maybe you're in even a season of life where you're thinking, Ben, celebration? What is there to celebrate? There's nothing to celebrate. And to that, I would respond and say, in a way, you're right. That's the story of the Bible. That apart from God, there would be nothing to celebrate. But the good news of Scripture, that this world does not exist apart from God and his rule over it. He is the king over all the earth. And that is good and comforting news to all peoples everywhere. Because it means this, that for those of us struggling, we do not trust in a God, in a provider, in a savior, in a protector who fails, but in one who always comes out on top who will stand in the end victorious as the king over all the earth. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Sound good? I want to pray and ask for God's help for our time together, and then we'll read the text together. But first, let's pray. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you are a God who does not leave us to wonder about who you are, to try to piece the the pieces together at just looking at nature to try to understand who you are, but you actively show us who you are and you do so in the Bible. So we thank you for scripture, for in it showing us what you are like, revealing yourself to us. And that's our prayer this morning that you would do just that. Help us not to wonder at who you are and how things are going to end up, but answer that for us this morning in a way that our hearts know it is true. And so we need you to plant that truth in our hearts. So we know you do that work. Do it in such a way that changes and molds us into the image of our Savior Jesus. We know that we need your help for this, so we ask for your help in the name of Jesus, and we pray through the Spirit. Amen. All right, you got your Bibles? Psalm 47. That is where we're at. You'll see here we got nine verses. This is God's word. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God, sing praises, sing praises to our King, sing praises, for God is the King of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations, God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham for the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. So there you have it. Nine short verses, but I think loud, powerful voices, verses. And there's a lot to unpack there, and we will together. But I think when it comes to Psalms, it's always important to start with the structure. We're dealing with uh, poetic literature here. Uh, We want to understand how the psalmist is intending to structure things. And that will tell us 
what he is intending to say to us. And I think in this case, thankfully, there's only nine verses to dissect. It makes it a little easier. I think it's pretty simple. There's two commands or invitations going on here. Verse 1, verse 6. And they're parallel commands, meaning they're the same command or invitation said in a different way for emphasis. And so you can see that on the study sheet you have. I hope you'll find that helpful today. The Kind of the structure of, I think, our text, but also of where I want, we're going to go in the sermon together, just so you know where we're headed. There's really one call in this psalm, one invitation. Clap your hands, shout to God with loud songs of joy. So you see there that first headline is one call, something that we're being called to do. And then the second headline Again, this is still on that first page there, is why. Why should we do that? What's the cause, as I put it there, for why we should do what we're being called to do? And then finally, on the back, you'll see climax. You have call, cause, and then the climax, really when the psalmist brings it all together at the end. He brings it home with a little bit of a look, a peek into the glorious future that awaits where we will see and it will be made manifest what we celebrate now For all peoples, they will know that God is the king of all the earth. And that celebration is really the tone of what the psalm is. It's a psalm of celebration. So we talked about celebration before because that's the tone of our psalmist. This is excited. This is a celebration. And so you'll see that evident right in verse 1. Let's read it together again. Clap your hands all peoples seem celebratory. Shout to God with long, loud songs of joy. Notice in our English Bibles, I think the appropriate exclamation marks. This is jubilant praise. There is enthusiasm and energy here. This is not muted in any fashion. This isn't clap your hands. This is not a golf clap, clap your hands. This is clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God. There's literally a loudness to this praise. It says, with loud songs of joy. There's actually noise, a high noise level that's expected. But this is not just noise for the sake of noise. This is worship. Look at verse 1 again. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout And notice where this is directed, to God with loud songs of joy. This is not mindless hooping and hollering. This is an outburst of delight, intentionally directed to the source of all delight. Clap your hands, all peoples, shout to God with loud songs of joy. And this call for loud praise, it's, it's not intended to be an obligation, something that you have to do because you're just told to do it. Genuine cheering is the outward expression of something very real going on inside. It's the outward expression of real joy. Joy. Joy comes when there's something that brings joy, something to end joy. So we cheer, like at a sports game, when there's something to cheer about. It's the same way here. It's not supposed to be an obligation. It's supposed to be a natural outcome of being filled, so filled with joy that it overflows and it bursts forth in this clapping of hands and this loud shout to God with a song of joy. 
So the point is we, we do not worship and praise over nothing. We worship as a response to God as he shows himself to us. And there's nothing that we cheer about a lot of different things, but there's nothing that we should cheer for more than being able to know God, being in a personal relationship with him as he reveals himself to us. Because there's nothing better than being in a right relationship with him. That's what the Bible teaches us. And so as we are those who know God, if you are among them, our response should be, must be, worship. The joy that comes from knowing God should overflow and it should look like this as the psalmist is describing it. And when we find ourselves in such a place where we are looking at God, our eyes are fixed on him, we're worshiping him and we're enjoying knowing him, true joy, then we're doing exactly what we're made to do and what the psalmist here and all of the Bible really calls us to do, to worship and praise God and enjoy him forever. And the psalmist emphasizes this call again. The first command is in verse one. The call comes up again uh, in verse six. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises for God is the king of all the earth. And one more time for good measure in verse seven. Sing praises with a psalm. Four times in verse six alone. That repetition really jumps out at you. Sing praises, sing praises, sing praises, sing praises. It's the same word, one word in Hebrew that we see four times as sing praises in English. And so there was a rhythm, more of an energy to it being one word. Sing, 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 sing to God. Sing praises to him. There's no doubt about what the psalmist is calling us to do. Clap your hands, shout to God, sing praises to him for he is the king. And the reason for that call is just that, and it's stated in verse two. For the Lord, the most high, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. And then he's gonna give more reasons in verse three and four, but let's focus on verse two for a second because this is where we must start, where the psalmist does, and where all our worship must begin. This verse two is all about who God is. And that's where our worship needs to start. In just simply wondering, wondering at who God is, the awesomeness of who he is as he reveals himself to us. And notice the name and the title that the psalmist uses for God here. For the Lord, this is in verse two, the most high is to be feared. The Lord, the most high. Uh, We should pay attention in scripture whenever we come across references to God that are different than simply G-O-D in English, God. Because whenever an author uses a name or a title, they're pointing us to a very specific dimension of God's character, of his nature. And that's what the psalmist is doing here. The Lord, the most high. Uh, God's names and his titles is just one of the, I think, very beautiful ways that he graciously reveals himself to us. He shows us what he's like. And interestingly, his names are never divorced from action. God doesn't just tell us who he is. He tells and shows us who he is. Oftentimes his names 
came out of. They were birthed out of an action that he performed where he showed who he is and the name follows. So, so gracious that God does this. And it, it's really beautifully done in the Old Testament uh, with using the divine name, Lord, Yahweh. When we see L-O-R-D in all caps in our English Bibles, that really is the divine name, the covenant name of Yahweh that God gave to his people Israel. It's so closely associated with his relationship with them, his faithfulness to them, his deliverance from the land of Egypt, from their slavery of over 400 years. When they hear the name Yahweh, those things come to mind that he has made a covenant with us to be our God and for us to be his people. In the Old Testament, we see often that name, the divine name, the covenant name Yahweh coupled with some kind of descriptor, a noun or an adjective to show us, again, a specific dimension of who God is. And that's what's going on here. We see Yahweh with Elion. Yahweh, the Lord Most High. Other examples, Yahweh, Yira, the Lord provides. You might have seen that as Jehovah, Jireh, the Lord provides. Yahweh, Sidkenu, the Lord, our righteousness. All these names, again, coming from specific instances where he's proving himself to be who he is. And here, the Lord Elion, Yahweh Elion. Elion literally translated the highest. The Lord is the highest, period. The psalmist is emphasizing his supreme superiority, his greatness over all other things. When it comes to his relation to all other things, Nothing matches up with him. He is over it all. He is the supreme one. He shares that space with no one. There is none like him. There is none over him. There is none beside him. He stands alone as the highest one, as the most high. And as the most high, the psalmist says he is to be feared as such. He is to be feared He is the great king over all the earth. And that descriptive of great, again, is just another way of emphasizing his greatness, that he's not like any other king. He's a great king. He's the king of kings. He's so unlike the other kings whose reign and realm are short and fragile. His reign is everlasting. And think about this. There is no space that exists that is outside of his realm. He rules it all. He is sovereign in all times and in all places. Clap your hands, shout for joy, for the Lord Most High is to be feared. He is a great king over all the earth. And I want to talk briefly about what the psalmist means when he says, To be feared. What does it mean to fear God? It's a refrain that we see often in scripture, repeated again and again, that we are to be those who fear God. But I think sometimes we get confused about what that means because of the way we use the word fear often in our everyday language. It's different than how scripture uses it. So let's talk about that. In the ESV here, it says, for the Lord the Most High is to be feared. Perhaps your translation, if you have something different than the ESV, says, for the Lord the Most High is awesome. Awesome. And I think both translations are completely viable. They're saying the same thing. But in the ESV, I prefer it this way, to be feared, because 
colloquially, the way we use awesome in our everyday language isn't exactly what the psalmist is intending. And I'm as guilty as any for that. Uh, I call things awesome all the time that aren't really awesome. Like, man, that cheeseburger was awesome. But something that's truly awesome, it impresses us in such a way. Think about that word, impression. It impresses us in such a way. It makes such a mark on our life that it changes us. It actually changes the way we live. We respond to what is awesome with action, appropriate action in response to it. And I think some of you are probably thinking, yeah, but that that cheeseburger changed me, man. (laughs) Fair enough. Let's think of it a different way. It would be appropriate to say the atomic bomb is awesome. And of course, I'm not saying the atomic bomb is cool. Far from it. But I am saying that the atomic bomb, like our psalmist says of the Lord Most High, is to be feared. I think the same type of response is appropriate. What does it mean to fear the atomic bomb? It means two things. First, to acknowledge its power. It has great power, in this case, to do terrible, terrible things. And then secondly, having acknowledged that power, we pay respect to it. We honor it in this sense, that we do everything in our power to make sure another one is never used again. That's what it means to fear the atomic bomb. And the psalmist is saying that we are supposed to similarly fear the Lord. It means that we recognize God's power and authority. It doesn't mean that we run around scared of him and that we're fearing he's out to get us. That's not what it means to fear God. No, it means we recognize his power and his authority over us, his eternal standing as the Most High. And then having recognized that, we respond with how we live our lives by living under that authority, respecting it, honoring it. So simply, to fear the Lord is to live under his lordship. We recognize his authority over every aspect of who we are and what we do. Our actions matter. The choices we make When it comes to fearing God, there is a reverent obedience to those who fear him. It marks their life. If your boss tells you to do something, you should probably do it. If a police officer tells you not to do something, well, you should probably not do it. And if the president were to call you up, you should probably at least answer the phone. But if God asks you to do something or not to do something, there is no probably about it. He is God, your king, and he is to be feared as such. That's what the psalmist is saying. He is the great king, as he says it, over all the earth. But I want to shift gears a little here before we get too far down the road of obey or else, because that's not really the tone of the psalmist at all. Remember, this is a psalm of celebration. The news that God is king is not doom and gloom, but rather the opposite. It is good and comforting news to, verse 1, all peoples. Clap your hands, all peoples. This is good news for all peoples everywhere. Why? Because in order for there to be joy, 
i.e. the clapping of hands and the shouting to God with loud songs of joy, in order for there to be true joy, joy, lasting joy that we all long for, there must be triumph. There must be victory. And we all face the same great foe, evil, sin, death. And guess what? The good news is the God who is king wins in the end. The fact that God is king points to another fact, that he always wins, that he is a triumphant king. In order to be the great king, the king of kings, he must be the victorious king. And the Bible says he is. He is. And we can hold to that. So no matter what we're facing, we can have hope. We can have joy because our joy isn't wrapped up in the things of this world. So Paul would say in Romans, if he is for us, if the sovereign ruler of all things, the God king of all the earth, the one who wins, if he is for us, then who can be against us? And of course, the answer is nothing. No one can be against us. No power, no ruler, no sickness, no tragedy, nothing in all of creation, even death itself. It cannot separate us from the love of God, which he says is beautifully demonstrated to us in Jesus Christ. And maybe you need to hear that this morning, that no matter what you're going through, what you're up against right now, put your trust in the one who is king over it all. Now, it doesn't mean that he's going to magically take away your pain It doesn't mean that he's going to take away the difficult situation. But it does mean this. That whatever you're facing, it's not bigger or stronger than he. Evil loses. Our king wins. There are times, though, and even seasons in our lives where it sure doesn't seem that way. Maybe you're in one of those right now. It seems like evil is doing a whole lot of winning. Sometimes we wonder, God, where are you? Why don't you do something about this? Can't you see I'm suffering? We're not alone in thinking this way. The people of God in scripture, we see it all the time, the people of Israel saying the same things. People throughout history, God's people said the same things still today. We say them. And God, you know what he does when his people respond this way to what's going on, to the hardship of living in this broken world? He does this gracious thing again and again. He reminds us of who he is. He reminds us of who he is. Sometimes gently, other times maybe not so much. But it is gracious that he reminds us of who he is. And the way that he does this is he reminds us of his faithfulness past, how he's taken care of us and demonstrated his love to us to help us remember that, yes, he will take care of me today. Yes, he is holding me in his hands still today. And as I face tomorrow, I can trust that he will be faithful tomorrow. God is so gracious in doing that. He doesn't have to, but he often gives us glimpses, reminders that he is who he says he is. 
So indeed, put your trust in the one who is king over it all. Exactly in verses three and four, what the psalmist is doing is doing that, reminding us of who God is. Let's read it together. Verse three, he subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. So this speaks of what God has already, as in past tense, accomplished for his people. In the ESV, it's in the past tense. Verse three, he subdued peoples under us. He subdued the nations under the people of Israel. They're celebrating this. Verse four, he chose our heritage for us. Again, notice the past tense. But maybe in your Bible, again, if you don't have an ESV this morning, Perhaps it's stated in the present tense. So verse 3 would read, he subdues, present tense, people under us. Verse 4 would read, he chooses our heritage for us. And maybe yet this morning you're here and you have a totally different translation that says it in the future tense. So it would read, he will subdue people under us. He will choose our heritage for us. So we have three different translations, past, present, future. Which is the correct one? All of them. Exactly. These are timeless truths. The God who did subdue the nations for his people Israel's sake today subdues nations for his people's sake. And one day, yet future, he will permanently subdue every foe. The God who chose his people before the foundation of the world still today chooses people. And one day he will divide the sheep from the goats according to his divine choice. The psalmist's words apply past, present, and future because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that is good news. But the reality is that we get caught up in this broken world and in our suffering, in the hardship of the pain of really feeling it. And we forget, we're tempted to doubt that God is who he says he is. We forget his faithfulness. Is he going to remain faithful? Is he actually going to come and make all of this new again? And when we're tempted that way, we must remember what the psalmist does in verse four. We must hold to what we often forget in the midst of the pain And that is, why is God faithful? Verse four, the end of it tells us, he chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he, what? Loves. So you ask the question, why? Why does God so love Jacob, Israel? Why, what did they do to deserve such love? To which you could also ask, why does God so love his church? Why does God so love the world? Why does God so love you and me? And the answer, of course, has nothing to do with you and me. It has everything to do with who God is. For this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Whenever we're tempted to doubt the fact that God does care for us and loves us, we must remember the cross. Again, we look to his faithfulness past 
And the greatest example is when he sent his son to die on the cross for us. And that helps strengthen our trust in the present and to anticipate that, yes, he is who he says he is. He is coming back again. Unless we forget that he is doing just that, that there is a glorious future ahead. This psalm, just like our hearts, it anticipates a future, not yet fulfillment, of God's kingship that will be displayed. It will be made manifest over all the earth in all its splendor. Because God really is the king of all the earth, there is coming a day that he will establish that reign in finality for all to see and recognize. This psalm is really beautifully nestled in between Psalm 48 and Psalm 46. Both of those psalms talk also long for the future, a future day that is yet coming. And they talk about the city of God. The city of God, it's a place of peace. It's a refuge for God's people and it's a place of prosperity. And the reason why it is all those things is precisely because God dwells there. The king dwells in the city. There in the city of God, there is a river. It is he himself that quenches every thirst. And the cry, the joyful cry, of its inhabitants is the Lord of hosts is with us. Hosts meaning armies. The Lord of armies, the commander of armies is with us. Of course, the emphasis there is on God's military might, the king's military might. The reason why the city of God is a peaceful place that is a refuge for God's people is because God is victorious in battle, period. He always is. He never loses. He wins. And that victory will be stamped, sealed, realized, made manifest for all one day. That is our great hope. The Lord of hosts, the God of armies is with us. The fact that God is king over the earth, it's a massive spoiler alert. In terms of the story of this world, we know the ending. And it's good news. The end of evil is written. And it reads like this. God is the king of all the earth. It reads like this. Verse 5. God has gone up with a shout. The Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the people gather as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. And this celebration speaks of a time yet future when our eyes will, they will behold the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords seated on his throne in final victory. Evil will be completely eradicated and this broken world that we know so well will be made new, whole again. The imagery of verse five that God has gone up is that of a king who is returning from battle after stepping down from his throne to fight for his people. 
And here he returns. He has gone up. He ascends to his throne with a shout. The Lord with the sound of a trumpet. The shout and the trumpet proclaim the reason why he returns to his throne. It is that he has been victorious. They proclaim his triumph. He is the triumphant king. He has done it. And the praises of the people ensue in verses 6 and 7. Sing praises to God. And so with that shout and that sound of a trumpet, the greatest celebration anyone will ever know will have officially begun and it will never end. And bowing before him and singing his praises will not only be the people of Israel on that day, but every tribe, tongue, and nation will be present. Look at verse 9. The princes of the people gather as the people of the God of Abraham. The princes of the people here represents the nations, all peoples of the world. They are here seen side by side, gathered with the people of Israel, worshiping God for who he is, not only as the king of Israel, but the king of all the earth. And so that last line in the psalm can thus be written and thus be fulfilled, that God is highly exalted because all the nations of the world, all peoples are exalting him as their great king. So in verse 9, the the psalmist really brings it all together. It's the fulfillment of verse 1. The ending fulfills the beginning. In verse 1, who is being called to clap their hands and shout to God in praise? All peoples. And in verse 9, who is then seen gathering to do just that, clap their hands and shout to God to worship him? It's all peoples. So this call in this psalm is a call for all people, which includes you and me, to do now, to do today, what one day all people will do. Honor God for who he is, the king, our king, the king of all the earth. And if you're unclear about what that looks like today, what does it look like to honor the king? It's about service. What you do with your life. You can't have two masters. You can't have two kings. Are you serving the king? The way you spend your time, your resources, what you spend your time thinking about, these are good indicators of who your king is. And it is good and right for us to literally sing like we do before our time in God's word, to sing to God, to to shout even in certain occasions to God. But the heart of worship does not only overflow in word, but in deed as well. Everything about us is worship. What we do matters. The way we live our lives is tremendously important. If you want to honor the king, obey him. And not with a spirit of dread like Ah, man, I guess I have to do this. But like a giddy child who is eager to please his father. So as we think about with our lives, what does it look like in action to clap our hands and to shout to God with loud songs of joy? I'm reminded of a faithful servant of the king who served at sunset for many years. But she's since gone to be with Jesus. Her name is Karen Schmidt. 
if you had the privilege of knowing Karen, you remember how she bounced. I mean, literally, skipped and hopped around this place as she gave herself to our children, to our families, to Christmas programs, to special events, you name it. When I think of Karen, I think of joy. And when I see this call in verse 1 to shout to God with loud songs of joy, I know that Karen's life was a loud song of joy. She served her king with joy. And the walls in this building still echo with her shout. And it echoes still in many of our hearts. Her impact carries on, as does the footsteps. She left us to hop in after her. Now, I'm not saying that we should all start hopping and skipping and shouting everywhere, but maybe that would be kind of cool. Let's try it next week. Um, but the Bible's pretty clear. If we're part of the family of God, joy should characterize our life. Joy. Karen showed us that. And we can even do this in the hard times. Even in the hard seasons. Even if there's something really tough going on. Because of this, the source of our joy is not found in the things of this world that will fall apart and let us down. The source of our joy is found in the one who comes through in the end. In the victorious king. In the one who loves us and gave himself up for us. That is the source of our joy. And the ultimate revelation of all this, the fulfillment of all this, of course, of God's kingship and his eternal victory is found in the person of Jesus, the Messiah. He is the one who fulfills the words of this psalm. It is he who will subdue the nations on that final day. It is he who will choose our inheritance It is he who will remount his throne after defeating the enemy. It is he who will reign over the nations. And it is he who will sit on his holy throne. And it will be he who is highly exalted. It will be at the name of Jesus that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord, the King of all the earth. And that reference on your study sheet there to Philippians chapter 2 reminds us that the reason that Jesus is highly exalted is because of the humiliation that he endured as the God-man on earth when he suffered. He suffered the most excruciating and degrading form of death imaginable, crucifixion. And on that cross, our king took on the unimaginable, the weight of all our sin and shame, and with it, the punishment that we deserve. The debt, also unimaginable. The debt we owe for all the wrong we've ever done, all the wrong we will do, all the good we've failed to do, all the good we will fail to do. Jesus paid for that on the cross. The price is paid. And when he rose again on the third day, he broadcasted and proclaimed to everyone that not even death has majesty or mastery for him. He is the Lord, the King of all. And if you put your trust in him, 
put your trust in Jesus as your savior from sin and the Lord of your life, he will not only forgive you of all your sin, but he will free you from its hold on you. And that is the good news the Bible speaks of. And in this world of brokenness and suffering, those of us who have trusted Christ, we can trust these two things. That the Lord is preparing a place for us. And that he will come back to make all things new. To make this world whole again. To make right what we made wrong. There's going to be, did you know this, a great shaking of the earth. A great judgment of the wicked. And this too is good news. That the king who rescues his people is also a king who crushes his enemies. Justice will be done on that day. And the hope that this psalm speaks of, where all peoples are gathered to praise the conquering king, it's going to come true. And the celebration will never end for those who have trusted Christ. I hope you're among them this morning. Consider trusting Jesus as your Savior and Lord because he is the king of all the earth. Would you stand with me and we'll close in prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you are who you say you are. We praise and recognize you as indeed the king over all the earth. You are our king. Help our lives to be those that with our actions, with our words, we are clapping our hands and shouting to you with loud cries of joy. Let our very lives be loud cries of joy to you. Let us delight in your kingship to share its good news with those around us that we worship and serve a king who wins. Help us hold to that as we endure tough times. We know we need your help for all this. We ask for it in the name of Jesus. We pray through the Spirit. Amen.